Well, Nate Larkin uh, was a pastor of a large non-denominational church in Florida. He was a graduate of a prestigious seminary where he had won the uh, preaching prize at the seminary. He was esteemed and honored. In fact, he went by the name Saint Nate by his congregation. This persona, these accolades, this performance, one night came crashing down. It came crashing down because his wife caught him after years upon years of him looking at pornography. He was found out. What is ironic is at that moment, it began a change. He no longer was a pastor performing. Instead, he was one that found true intimacy. True intimacy with Christ. Church no longer became a game. Christianity didn't become a show. It became something real to him. You might not know the name Nate Larkin, but over the decades, Nate Larkin has led a large group, a group that's not just in our nation, but worldwide. It's called the Samson Pirate Monks. It's a group of men who try to find freedom, freedom from pornography and sexual addiction, and try to find what true intimacy looks like with Christ. What are we to do when the law hits us? When we are hit face to face with the maker of the perfect law. Today we're going to see Israel and what they do when they come face to face with God. They come face to face in hearing the law. What is their reaction? And how will it inform us when the law comes to us? Well, let's look together, shall we? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Longer readings than we've been used to this summer. So let's pay attention to God's word. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near. And hear all that the Lord our God will say. And speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. 
And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. The word of the Lord. Were you just joining us? Welcome. You've missed all the Ten Commandments. For those of you that have joined us this summer, you might be wondering, well, I thought we were done. We did the Tenth Commandment last week. Checkbox is done. Ten done. Tie it with a nice bow. On to the next thing. That kind of plays into some of our misperceptions about the law and the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we think the law stands separate from a personal God. You have to see that the Ten Commandments and the law given, they are flanked by this relationship. They are given to a certain people that already have a covenant with God. They are flanked by his care, his nature, his awe, his relationship with people, they just don't stand in and of themselves. They are put with this caring and loving God. The favorite part of our vacation is happy hour. We do it every day at the cabin. And what we do is we have this charcuterie board, and I spend quite a bit of time cutting all the food, getting it all ready, and at about four o'clock in the afternoon, all the kids and Aaron all gather together on the porch. And there on the charcuterie board is cheese, and there's fruit, and there's fudge, and special drinks. Now, the cuts and all those things, they are good in and of themselves. They are great. We love them. But the truth is what makes them so good is what they're flanked by and their meaning that comes with it. The fudge is from Mackinac Island where we go every single year and it kind of marks our year to celebrate a faithfulness of a year that God has given us as we bike around the island and then buy fudge together. The fruit comes from a local stand we started to love up in the UP. The drinks, the mint that we put in the drinks come from our garden. The saratory cheese, the matemore cheddar, comes from Wisconsin. And it actually was given to us at first by the Greenlees that 
10 years ago when we couldn't go to the cabin ourselves because we just had had Claire, that the Greenlees came with us so that they could help us with our kids. And we remember that relationship when we have that cheese. See, that whole board, all that food, it's flanked by so much care and history and love and richness. You see, the law is good in and of itself. It is good. But its beauty is even greater by seeing what it's flanked by. A great God that cares for us and loves us and wants what is best for us. I remember in college, my Old Testament professor said, you know, the Old Testament Decalogue, it's not so unique. It's not so special. There are so many cultures that had these kind of principles, just like the Ten Commandments. The Hebrews were not unique. Well, the Bible actually agrees with my professor's statements. That's what we call the natural law. In Romans, it says that even the Gentiles had the law. It was written on their hearts. All of humanity had the law because they were made in the image of God. Even before the Decalogue, they knew what was right and wrong because they were made in his image and is inscribed on their hearts. But what makes the Decalogue unique, the Ten Commandments unique, is that unlike the laws of other cultures that came before between kings and their people, now there is a contract between God and people. And God wanted to make clear to the people of Israel what was obscured because of the brokenness of humanity, giving the Decalogue to them, that they would be a light to the nations. You see, he said, obedience to these laws is not what creates this relationship. No, out of this relationship should become obedience to what I'm making clear that you should obey as my people so that others might see my goodness to how to create a nation, a people that would be a place where people would be loved and cared for. And here we have in this passage, after we have gone through these Ten Commandments, a reminder that Moses gives to the people that he's giving the law the second time as they're the plain of Moab before entering the land, what God had done 40 years beforehand in Mount Sinai. That he had shown himself on the mountain the fire, the presence. And he had given the law to Moses and the people had seen this. And in seeing God's power, they realized they were set apart. In seeing God's power, they saw his greatness, his glory. In seeing his power, they said, okay, let's send the elders 
and the heads of the tribes to Moses. And then the elders and the heads of the tribes go to Moses and say, we can't even approach God. And how good it is that someone is even to be able to approach God and still live like you. They haven't died. That is how amazing our God is. That he would speak to us and not kill us because of his holiness. And he would tell us how we are supposed to live. You know, when I read this passage, some of you might just check out immediately. Fire on a mountain. Right? The presence of God. It's the stuff of fairy tales. That's what you guys still believe? Come on, we live in the enlightened age. This stuff is ridiculous. Idea that we will surely die? I mean, come on. As some of you know, I love Charles Taylor. I think he speaks of our age very well. He's a philosopher that was at Harvard, a Canadian. I won't hold that against him. And he read a good book called The Secular Age. What he's saying is the air that we breathe in American culture is the idea that there is nothing outside of the imminent frame, the natural world. There is nothing supernatural, and we just live and breathe that. And the idea that there is a God that cares for us and loves us and intercedes in the world is hard. And we try to just keep within the box of the natural world. But what he says in his book and what I have observed is no matter how hard we try to keep within the natural world, he says the frame opens. That we get glimpses of that there is something greater than ourselves. There is something supernatural in this life. It's amazing how I have gone in Appleton and walked and talked and been with people. And they have talked to me. After I do weddings, specifically I do a lot of weddings outside of our church. And after you share the gospel and you talk about love, people will come up afterwards and they will be weeping. And they will say, something hit me. I have been, out, been loving my spouse for years. And I am thoroughly convicted. People after hangovers, after drinking bidges, that the day after that they said something supernatural came to me. That said, if you continue to live this way, you will die. And they said they've just been transformed. It's amazing how much people try to run away from God, but the weight that there is something greater and there is some way that they're supposed to live still hits them. Even a pastor like Nate Larkin, who preached from the stage all this time, it finally hit him. How blind we are at times. This book is one that was a New York Times bestseller and kind of defined an age of baby boomers that came to know Jesus. The book is called Born Again by Charles Colson. 
If you don't know the story of Charles Colson, Colson was a lawyer in the Nixon administration. He was called the hatchet man. What that meant is he provided a list of enemies of the administration that they would write horrible stories about. And he helped orchestrate the Watergate break-in and eventually went to prison because of it. In these times that things started to hit him, a friend of his invited him over to his house. And he writes about this experience. Outside in the darkness, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. Tears welled up in my eyes as I groped in the darkness for the right key to start my car. Angrily, I brushed them away and started the engine. What kind of weakness is this? I said to nobody. The tears spilled over and suddenly I knew I had to go back into the house and pray with Tom. I turned off the motor, got out of the car, and as I did, the kitchen light went out. Then the light in the dining room. I stood for a moment, staring at the darkened house. Only one light burning now in an upstairs bedroom. Why hadn't I prayed when he gave me the chance? I wanted to so badly. Now I was alone. Really alone. As I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. There were no street lights, no moonlight. The car headlights were flooding illumination before my eyes. But I was crying so hard, it was like trying to swim underwater. I pulled to the side of the road, not more than a hundred yards from the entrance to Tom's driveway. The tires sinking into soft mounds of pine needles. I remember hoping that Tom wouldn't hear my sobbing, the only sound other than the chirping of crickets that penetrated the still of the night. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretense, about fears of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more, so I repeated over and over the words, take me. We don't need fire from a mountaintop when what burns in our hearts is even more powerful that would turn a lawyer in the White House, who orchestrated Watergate, 
who created crime after crime and broke commandment after commandment that the voice of God would change and melt his heart. That is a fire upon a mountain. A fire to live differently. The law is a mirror. It shows us how we fall short and how we need God. In verses 32 through 33, we see that Moses, just from the time before, 40 years before Mount Sinai, now he comes back to the plains of Moab before the people are about to enter the land. And it's reiterated that it will go well with you if you keep these commandments. As you enter into the land, if you abide by these, Israel will do well. This is what we classically call the second use of the law, the civil use, the curb. The law is good for society at large to help protect society. And that is reiterated here as the people are going into the land. But I think is, and I'm going to reiterate a point I've made before during the Ten Commandments, the biggest problem we have about the law in a very individualistic, self-expression kind of culture is how dare anything outside of myself tell me how to live. No one knows better than me. Let's reiterate about this very thought, how much it permeates American culture. It's an amazing documentary. It's called Surfwise. came out in the early 2000s. And it documents a guy named Doc Paskowitz who had eight boys and one girl. And he and his wife, First of all, he was a trained doctor at Stanford University. That he and his wife decided, we're going to just buy a camper, a moving van, and we're going to stick all of our surfboards into it, and we're just going to travel throughout the world surfing with our kids for decades. (laughs) Eight boys and one girl. And the documentary, you know, follows this trip. Now, how, do you, how good of advice do you think it is to take eight kids, nine kids, surfing for a decade plus around the world? And the thing is, that when you're watching this, you realize it sounds cool, but then you realize how crazy it was. And you realize how people talk to this man and tell him, okay, is this really good? And you see the family just fall apart. But no matter what advice you give him, No matter what thoughts you give him, there is no way he is going to buck away from his plan. I think about that stubborn headedness when I see that documentary, but then I realize I have the same at times. And I know people that are the same. You might be that kind of person. No one is going to tell me what to do. No one has a better idea of how to live my life than I do. Especially the church. 
truth is, many of you have been hurt by the church. Feeling like here is a position of authority telling me what to do when you just want to go your own way. I'm reminded of Nate Larkin. Nate was in the church and he tried to play the game by abiding by the laws and performing. But that wasn't what church really was. Instead, he said he found it when he actually revealed his struggles to his brothers and sisters. And when he revealed his struggles and showed where he was at, then he was allowed to people come alongside him and to call him to something better, even in his struggle. I encourage some of you that are very against authority, that have been hurt by authority. What the Ten Commandments show us is that we have a good God that wants what is best for us. Even when we might disagree, He knows better. Just, I was reviewing my sermon, and David and I were talking last night. We were talking about how many people think about Christianity, and maybe you think about Christianity this way too. Maybe your friends say this to you. You know, that Christian thing, that works for you. That's great. You go for it. If it works for you, great. I'm here to tell you, if you have that view, Christianity does not work for me. I don't want to follow it at times. I don't believe this is the way to go. I want to live my own life and do my own things. But I have tasted and I have seen that God knows better than I do. Christianity doesn't work for me. But instead what it does, it shows me what is best for me. And then, I think some of the greatest beauty of this passage is what's happening between these people and Moses. You see, the people say, we have heard what the Lord says, and we will do it. And God responds, it's good and right what they have spoken. But again, they don't want to do it themselves. <laughs> I love this. The Lord says, oh, oh, that they had such a heart to abide by these commandments. And it's well said because Again, 40 years ago, right after giving the commandments again, they formed the golden calf. Just years after this, as they enter in the land, they forgot the Ten Commandments. You see, they constantly forget and forget. How are they to do this? How are they supposed to abide by the law? So they just give up? They try and try, and they fail, and they fail. And again, the picture that is given to us is that there is one that goes and is an intermediary for them with God. 
Moses. It's much like myself at the cabin, right girls? When we open the cabin, who's the one that has to go in first? I do, right? To make sure all the mice are out of the the cabin, right? And here is Moses going before the people. And here's the thing. It points to a greater mediator. One that led the way that's greater than Moses. That was perfect. That came in human flesh. That actually faced the wrath of God and took it upon himself. He did not live, but he died for us. But then he rose again in order that we might come to God in our faults, in our sins, and not be destroyed. This language is powerful. That we would have an intermediary. That we would have one that we can rely on to approach this holy God. One that we can rely on as we struggle through our sins. We struggle through trying to abide by these Ten Commandments that have been coming to us over these past weeks. How we fall short in our anger towards others. How we fall short in creating idols. How we fall short in the images we look at. How we fall short in coveting. How we fall short over and over again. But then there is one that we can go to. That abides with us. That helps us. I love the music that Benjamin chose today. And a lot of intimate language. And the men singing intimate language. Some of us think that idea of this, you know, healthy masculinity must be just this new invention of the 21st century. I encourage some of you to read some of the reformers, some of the Puritans, and the language that they use about their relationship with God in Christ. I've been reading John Owen lately in his book, Communion with God. And the language he uses and the intimacy he has with Christ is amazing. Here's one thing he says, again, borrowing from the Psalms. Christ has a banner for his saints. And that is love, all their protection. um, And that is love, all their protection is from his love. They shall have all the protection his love can give them. To safeguard them from death and all their enemies. Whatever presses on them, it must press through the banner of love of the Lord Jesus. They have then great spiritual safety, which is another ornament or excellence of communion with him. Do you know what the answer is for the law to be a guide? The answer is intimacy with Jesus. He is the one that has accomplished the law for us. That we might live in his power. So that we can live it out ourselves. I feel like I I need to say something, especially in the place we are in Appleton. 
here's some of the responses I get from people about going through the Ten Commandments. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. So glad. We need the Ten Commandments in our corrupt society. <laughs> we need it so badly. Now, hear me. I do believe our society needs the Ten Commandments. But that response by us as Appletonians says they need it and we don't. There's something about living in Appleton, moral Appleton, safe Appleton, right? No murdering, you know, we hear much about stealing, committing adultery, all those things. This is the good society, right? This is why we moved here. For our kids to have a great environment. But what I have seen in my 10 years in being this, in this city... That as much as we try to abide by the outside of the law and live this good society, there is something deeper that people are dealing with. Bitterness in their families. Alcohol to numb pain. Lack of contentment. Bickering between spouses. No one will see, they say. We'll look good on the outside, but the inside, there is so much pain. Do you know why I think this is? Because we're trying to be moral. We're trying to be good without communion with God. What this passage shows us after the ends of the Ten Commandments is this. God desires to be in intimacy with us, to be close to us. We cannot approach, so they send Moses, and they say, how amazing that we can send someone and he can live. And that is a picture for us, that we can enter into relationship with this holy God in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our bitterness and he can abide with us so that we can be able to fulfill the deeper parts of the law. The law makes no sense without the one that truly fulfilled the law. The law has come in the person of Christ to be with you and abide with you. It's amazing. We don't ask you to come up here and write the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we don't ask you to give us the list of ways that you have not abided by the Ten Commandments. No, when you take communion, what do you do? You take in the one that fulfilled the law. That's what you need. You need communion with him. I encourage you as you think about these laws that we've gone through. That you might see that you need Christ to be able to live. To live 